Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Hello and welcome. I am back, bitches. Oh, yes, I am. This is the Filmmakers Podcast, a podcast where we talk filmmaking, from indie films to studio films and everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them, and how to try to F it up in a very, very humble opinion. I'm saying I'm back because I'm back from directing King Arthur. Technically, it's called uh, Arthur Merlin, colon, Knights of Camelot. Uh, I am Giles Alderson. I've also directed the Dare feature film, and I've produced A Serial Killer's Guide to Life, which... Andy, you'll like this. I haven't introduced him yet. We were nominated, long-listed nominated for a Biffa this week. Congratulations, man. With Stat and Poppy, Charity and myself. But you were there too. I was there too. I was around. I pressed buttons and gave cornflakes out and made vans move from there to there. You know... Real the main stuff. stuff. The main stuff. Joining me today is my co-host, is the fantastic director of photography, otherwise known as cinematographer, otherwise known in America as DP, Andrew Roger. And, uh, and in the UK, DOP. Yes, D- <laughs> isn't that strange? Yeah, it's why weird, is that? that? Why? I don't know, it shouldn't be DOP because uh, you shouldn't capitalise the of, right? That's no, wrong. you should never do it. So no but uh, we find it maybe English people find it more difficult to say uh, DP and say DOP or DOP. Isn't that weird? Isn't is that because development producers are thing? That's what I've always uh, wondered. No, people think that because I've said I'm a DP, and like, oh, you're a development producer. And then like, well, no. There you go. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. DP means development producer. If anyone mm-hmm. else knows that, please tweet us at Filmmakers Pod, and we'll find an answer to that. Andrew has just recently, uh, well, obviously shot King Arthur with me, but also Plebs is on TV. Oh, we're not right talking about Plebs. Well, we no, we haven't because I, 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 we did some when we were doing Knights of Camelot. I keep calling it different titles. I'm really sorry. Knights of Arthur's Knights Cam- of Arthur's, Arthur's Cam- Camelot. <laughs> The Knights of Arthur's colon. I love that. <laughs> and we did some uh, on-set diaries, and I apologise for those who were obviously crying out for, for the pod on Friday, the special diary one. But I realised that it wasn't that interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it was just me and you occasionally, me going, just out of our Today minds. we filmed this. Today it was difficult. Today we got raining. rained on. Yeah. So I thought, oh God. I, you guys. I, yeah, so I spared you guys that. And I thought myself and Andy, before we get onto the brilliant podcast today with Ross Clark, talking about his fantastic World War II movie, The Birdcatcher, um, which is available now, I think everywhere. Uh, Ross will tell you exactly where. If not, there'll be a link in the show notes. But first, before myself and Andy catch up on our Knights of Camelot adventures and we get to the podcast with the wonderful Ross Clark have to give a huge shout out to Robbie McCain, CJ and Phil Hawkins for covering the last three, four weeks. 
You guys are amazing. Thank you. Uh, if you haven't listened to those episodes, do listen. It's fantastic. It's with David Kep, the screenwriter of Jurassic Park, no less. We also got Dolly Wells and Emily Mortimer, um, Rowan Athale and Rain McCormack talking about his latest film, The Village in the Woods. Um, get listening. Thanks, guys. Honestly, I appreciate you doing that while myself and Andy were away filming King Arthur stuff. Um, make Your Film is on the 10th of December. Just something for your diaries. That's it. Make Your Film, 10th of December. Remember it, 10th of December, 10th of December in London. I'm coming, I'm coming. There you go. Now when someone says 10th of December, you go, I've got something, I've got something. Yeah, that's right. Myself and Dom Lamar is the next Make a Film event. It's going to be super excited. That's sponsored by Performance Insurance. Speaking of sponsors, do you know what's really annoying is when you're making a promo or a music video or a sales vid, whatever you're doing, it's really annoying when you're trying to find the right music or your showreel, perhaps, which is why the team at Musicbed have really helped and built their platform because they know filmmakers like you do struggle with that. They've collaborated with hundreds of artists, bands and composers and they've made it easier than ever for you to get that perfect song for your film, promo, trailer, sales sizzle, whatever it is, so you can get back into the editing and not worry about it. You can download a single song, get unlimited music with a subscription or even create a custom song or score from scratch. They now have over 20,000 songs ranging from cinematic to electronic to indie and hip-hop. The one you can hear now, underneath me talking, is from them. Sounds cool, right? There's some classic, classic tracks for you to create uh, and get making. Um, Why not get your free account and learn more? Go to musicbed.com. And you, as a Filmmakers Podcast listener, are giving you one month of subscription for free. Yeah, that's right, for free. Or 20% off a single song purchased. Just enter promo code FilmmakersPod when you check out. Links to all that, all that, are in the show notes. We'll get onto that in a bit. But we thought we'd have a little catch-up. Yeah. Even though we've been speaking to each other constantly for the last month. We've seen enough of each other. We've seen a lot of each other. But, you know. We lived together as well. It was nice. We lived together. We had our own little flat. Oh, a little cottage. It was a cottage that was... uh, Our fruit and veg went mouldy after a day. Yeah. The fridge didn't work properly. You know, my camera. You know, I had the problem with the the door on it going all, like, funny. You had a door on your camera? There's a door on my camera. Did you go inside? A little man lives in there. Oh, he he moves the tape along. Right, is he the director? Who's the tape along? Yeah, he winds the tape along with a big right. pencil. Does he? Yeah. Like, like, a little like, pencil, really. little pencil, like little. the old school of winding the tape on. Yeah, like that. yeah, yeah. high eight. Go on. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, got home, yeah. left it in my house, my non-damp house for a day. It's mm. fine now. Which is literally that the camera was damp all day and the camera was damp all night. Right, because it was a damp house. Yeah, damp. How was that then, shooting... In the dampness. In the dampness of Wales. It was an absolute nightmare. It was. But it does look very beautiful. Yep. And and props to Nathan and um, Oscar. Oscar, my uh, second AC, my first AC, um, for keeping everything dry, because that became their main job, was like, just, just keep bags on the camera and keep everything dry, and they did really well. Mm-hmm. And so the camera continued to function through a hurricane and being in the rain in a river next to a waterfall mm-hmm. stuff like that stuff, just stuff like that general yeah. sort of stuff like that which was quite incredible really because we got we had to stop filming one day because of maybe a storm was coming we were trying not to but maybe a, a hurricane actually coming. came and then yeah. we had to stop we had to stop that but I'm talking about the day when we got we almost shut oh, down oh really but 
Yeah. Because the RNLI came. RNLI came, yeah. The, the Coast Guard got called on us and it was kind of crazy, really. And what was interesting about that, it was it was one of those things where you have to just keep... Sh- for me, Yeah. until someone drags me off set, <laughs> and until you say, Giles, Giles you've got We're going to die. Now. We're going to die. Or the actors go, come on now, there's a wave hitting me. Yeah. I'm going to carry on. And the reason why I'm going to carry on is because... I'll never get to shoot that again if I stop that's it mm-hmm. so you sometimes just got to keep filming and keep going and as long as it's safe turns out it was safe turns out it actually was safe yeah. um, we didn't need to, to do what we did and rush through uh, and panic but these I think I think any time on a low budget indie shoot things are going to go wrong things yeah, are yeah. going to be and I'm surprised actually touching wood already and still that more things didn't go wrong mm-hmm. I mean there was a lot of things that went wrong in a good way and in a bad way and then yeah, every day had a new I was talking to the idea about it every, every day had a new challenge mm-hmm. there would be a big event each day that would cause a challenge yeah. but hey we got through it we did get through it and I'm very proud of everyone yeah, I am actually too. really proud it's like yeah. a week later now I think it's actually a week today that we was our last day on the film God, God. And basically, you've slept for the whole time, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it, good. How, was it the, one of the hardest shoots you've done? It wasn't the hardest. I think it's number three hardest shoot oh, I've okay. ever done. Oh, that's quite good. Do you think just because you expected it to be hard that it was less Yeah, hard? I was just like, this is going to be a nightmare, but it's fine because Giles is going to be there and we're going to shoot it it's in castles and we had a good cast. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Um, so, yeah, but it was tough. Yeah. Really tough and physically tough. We walked a long way. We were, it was raining all the time. I don't know if I mentioned that, um, and we had to get a lot done. But we got it done. And do you know what was? But just to go on a tangent. What was really interesting for me is I just come off plebs. Yes. Um, which was like giant crew, and loads of interior stuff that was lit, and exterior stuff that was lit. Big teams, big lighting teams, big camera teams, and then to go from that to uh, a sheet where we deliberately didn't have any g there was the, it was all natural light it was all candles and by g you mean grip and electric and team there was no grips or electricians or no. gaffers it was all we work with the light that's there and walk around that um, it was quite freeing in a way as well mm. so I, I did enjoy a different challenge you know mm. you, you, you work what you got and as a result it's quite moody and beautiful and natural yeah. in a way that I think clubs it isn't because it's a whole different thing but, yeah um, well it's a set up studio environment where you yeah. can take your time whereas sometimes we didn't have time no and it's point the camera over there <laughs> let's go let's go <laughs> let's shoot let's shoot you know and we found things along the way and actors found things along the way which I really like I missed shots stuff like that it was all the actors the nights getting involved and seeing that there was this beautiful mist over this sort of uh, what kind of area was it a field a paddock yeah, field yeah. thing and just going, Giles will shoot him if we stand here long enough. Yeah. And they heard the screams through the forest, Giles! <laughs> Come get this shot! Get this shot! And I love that because it meant that everyone was in it together. Yeah. And wanted to make something as best it could be and go, this is going to look epic and cool. Mm-hmm. And that's what we did. We really tried to work our asses off and get something good. So I'm now jumping into the edit. It's a quick turnaround. It's really mm-hmm. quick. It's, it's delivered very soon and we go this gets released end of March and I know that might sound like time but we're nearly November mm-hmm. um, the Christmas soon Christmas that takes a big chunk out then you've AFM's coming up we're doing a little trailer for that so and Knights of Camelot will be upon you maybe before the dare which is just mental because it's <laughs> nearly three years since the dare I've been like four features since we shot the dare you know that I think I have too yeah I think I've done yeah, yeah after this yeah, yeah. yeah it's my fifth yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
Do you, does that make, hey, does that make Knights of Camelot your first feature? Technically, then it comes would out first. be my first feature. So which is mad, right? Apart from the documentary, which we'll talk about with Ross in a minute, about the fact that the docs count as much, you know, when you're making... They do count, of course they do, but I meant in terms of when you're making factual stuff. People don't seem to credit them as, as part of your making a feature film um, thing. Which is really interesting, I mm. find. Because yeah, yeah. we shot that after the dare as well, and that's been released and done its thing, and World of Darkness. But anyway, I digress. It was a tough shoot. I'm sure me and Andy will talk about this for the next year, yeah. uh, about how we made it and dropping it in, into each episode about bits and pieces. And maybe we'll do a special. Certainly the cast are amazing. We'll, we'll all sit and talk about it and how we made it and what not to do. And what I learned, I learned so much uh, about me um, what I do differently already, um, even though it's been a week. Different DP. Well, that obviously that goes without saying. Proper one, like like someone who knows how to you know keep the camera dry. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> to be fair, you did. Even when I, you even in the hurricane when I went, Andy, can we shoot? And you go, Charles. It was literally the, Charles. We, we couldn't shoot One Direction because the rain was coming horizontally onto the lens, and I, I wanted to shoot, and we had everything like bagged up, but yeah, it just was going soft because optically just rain in the, in the lens yeah yeah. but we, there was one shot we did do because I was like I, we're gonna, I've got to do which it. is fine it looks just rain in the lens <laughs> and you went Charles this looks now like it's just and I went yeah yeah but hey it's rain in the lens yeah. he's getting wet we're getting wet and the whole film is that way yeah, yeah. the whole film is wet <laughs> it's wet and miserable but hey you can make could make for a great film so anyway uh, th- let's get to today's podcast shall we mm. let's get the brilliant director Ross Clark um, who I know through football uh, I know through Mark Strong, I know through Patrick Marber, and uh, Mark Strong has been on the podcast on episode 19, and Ross talks about his first short film he made that he blagged his way to get Mark Strong, look forward to that in the episode, and he talks about how he made his brilliant second debut feature, De- second debut, can you have a second debut? You, you just have, so yeah. So he's got a second debut feature uh, called The Birdcatcher, which is available everywhere now. Enjoy this week's podcast <laughs> with director and screenwriter Ross Clark. He's great. So we're sat here at the wonderful film director Ross Clark's house and we are sipping, what are these called? Uh, well, it's mezcal. This is illegal mezcal, apparently. Right. Although it is legal. But yeah. It's, and it's... Tastes illegal. It's a legal brand. I'm going to have a bit now. Mm. That takes the hairs off your tongue, that one. <laughs> That's full on. Um, this is Ace. Thank you for joining us on the Filmmakers Podcast, Ross. Here talking about your second feature film your second one as director well third if you count the documentary yeah, as well yeah. which is great which i like to yeah, <laughs> which, yeah, yeah, yeah otherwise it just fades away into insignificance exactly. and you work hard on that so let's jump back before we talk about the bird catcher which is out now and which is fantastic both me and andy watched it last night not together i hasten to add did we at the same time maybe i think it probably was at the same time yeah, wasn't it no. And it's such a great film. Honestly, Thank I you. was like, wow. Beautiful colours, beautiful yeah. cinematography, very well directed. Performances were out of this world. Uh, and I can't wait to talk about it. So that film, The Birdcatcher, is out now. But we'll talk about that soon. Sure. Let's talk about your start. Let's talk about why you became a filmmaker in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I became a filmmaker because I love cinema, like most people that become filmmakers. But I had I was doing an MA in critical theory, which is a kind of mishmash of psychoanalysis and film theory and structuralism and and I just didn't want to get caught in this kind of labyrinth of academic life and intellectual pursuit around film Mm. I didn't want to be a critic um 
Because that would well, be a shit job, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> would it? We can come to that if you want later. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. And um, and so I thought, oh, someone makes these things. And I went to Los Angeles and and did a course over there in screenwriting. And I'd done one course here at the David Lean Cinema in Croydon, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Made a really bad short film. Uh, was that, that wasn't the one with Mark Strong, right? No, that no, comes we'll come later. That, yeah. right? great. So I made this really bad short film, which was a great concept, which was you five little vignettes following the path of an ecstasy tablet. But Because I was living in a <laughs> wow. different world then, because I was a DJ and I was yeah. doing things like Lovebox with Groove Armada. Well, you doing... set Lovebox up, yeah, right? Yeah, Lovebox, big festival. Mm. If people don't know, in America or around the world, it's a big festival in the UK. It's doing very well. And you actually set that yeah, up with Groove Armada. Yeah, went to Tom and Andy who were Groove Armada and said, you know, maybe we could do a club night. And we started off doing a club night. And then someone came to me and said, oh, I've got this Clapham Common license. Do you want to do a festival? We did it and thought, I don't know if we can do this. Put 20,000 tickets on sound, sold out in 10 minutes or something. Really? Yeah, it was crazy. So that was sort of two or three years of my life doing that. And then I realised if I carried on doing that, I'd probably make a lot of money, but not fulfil what I wanted to do in film. Um, and you always knew you wanted to be a filmmaker you always knew that yeah well not always i'd say i was about 30 when i sort of went oh yeah maybe i can do that because i was djing throughout my time in manchester when i was studying um and so i went to la and through a, a sort of torturous route by happenstance i was writing a script for a guy who was the dp on without a trace okay who is mm-hmm. now direct as well about homelessness in LA and he wanted to write a script about a Vietnam and sorry an Iraq war vet who came back and was homeless and there was this epidemic problem in LA at the time it was about 2006 2007 and at the same time I met Praz Michelle from the Fugees mm-hmm. through a different project which was uh, about Jamaica called Yardi which ended up being a film mm-hmm. many years later um, which I wasn't involved in but um and through those two meetings, I met this producer who said, oh, you know all about Skid Row. We're making a documentary. We need a second director because we're going to shoot 24-7 for 10 days down there. Prize is going to live as a homeless person. I, and I thought, well, you know, that'll be easy. <laughs> and of course, At this point, I didn't think it would be easy, actually, but I was, didn't realise the scale of the problem. Right, right yeah. So, it's a big problem. It is a big problem. And I watched that documentary yeah. somewhere near here, and I, I really enjoyed it. It's fantastically made. But at that point, you didn't know. You'd made a short, but you didn't know what you are getting yourself yeah, into. Yeah, I skipped the short, actually. I, I lived, I've lived in this area in Shoreditch forever, and I was writing this short film off the back of this course, and, and uh, every t- day I was writing, I'd see this actor, Mark Strong, who was, you know, he was doing well at the time, but he, he'd done Our Friends in the North, he'd done The Iceman Cometh with Kevin Spacey, and he, but he wasn't as big as he is now, obviously. And I I was in a cafe, and I said to the guy who runs the cafe, is he a nice guy? And he's like, oh, he's a lovely guy. And so I just went up and said, I've got this short film I've written for you. And so you just literally went yeah. up to Mark Strong and said, yeah. I, I'm a director, yeah. and I've got this script. And to my amazement, he said, oh, great, let me read it. Amazing. <laughs> and I hadn't actually finished it, so I'd sort of run home that afternoon, finish it. And then I bumped into him again, and he's like, where's the script? Holy literally, shit. Yeah, because we were just, well, we, you know, it's a small area. It's and at that inch, point, you didn't have a script. I did have a script, but I oh, hadn't no. finished it. Right. And then it took about another year to kind of, get a space where he was free and ah, okay. 
and then a year later we made it but he was brilliant and it was a brilliant experience and you know we shot it in my hometown which is Clacton on Sea mm-hmm. it's a very dark film it's but quite beautiful because those seaside towns are yeah so beautiful would, so um but, but like what i love about that and a lot of filmmakers out there who are trying to get films off the ground or trying to get them made is you just went up to an actor you respected and admired even though he was just happened to be there but and said i'm making a film do you want to be in it and sometimes you need the balls to do that right yeah although it's never worked since i have tried it since <laughs> i did it with jake gillenhall did you to try and get him to do the voiceover he was in a he was in a play <laughs> yes with Matt Damon, right? No, this was oh, before. That was a long time ago. Right, it was right, Hayden okay. Christensen and Anna Paquin, and it was Wasn't... it was a Kenneth Lonergan play. Yes, I can't okay, remember yeah, what it was okay. called. But anyway, I went up right. to him and said, "I've got Mark Strong in this short. Will you do the voiceover?" And he was like, "Who the fuck are you?" <laughs> anyway, so yeah, I, I wish I could say that worked all the time, but it doesn't. But it worked in a very good way. And Mark, you know, end, Mark end up being able to pay Mark because we sold the film, so that was That's nice, incredible. Yeah, I mean, I think we sold it largely off the back of him, but it did. It definitely, you know, people always say, "Should you make a short film?" I think if you can make a good or decent short film, mm-hmm. better still if you've got good actors in it. They don't have to be name actors, but I think, you know, I mean, I just think if you've got good actors, you've got half of a half of a movie, hopefully, mm-hmm. and a good script. I agree. Um, yeah. yeah, I you wouldn't. Know, be, I wouldn't be where I am now if I hadn't made short films. I don't know about you, Andy. Yeah, probably the same. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah you've got yeah. to learn somewhere. You don't Definitely. get many chances mm-hmm. yeah. to learn as a director, and and people want to see that you've done something. I think people who make, and I remember being annoyed when people when I was making Derma, we were about to make Dermaphoria, which is out here, is called The Chemist. And I remember people saying, "Oh, well, it's your first feature," and I was like, "Well, I've done a feature doc and I've done mm-hmm. shorts." But then when you make a feature, you're like, oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. You're right. I didn't actually know what this was going to be like. And please describe for people out there who haven't made one, or those people who haven't forgotten, like having a baby, what that feeling is like when you're actually on set and going, oh, this is what it's like making a feature. Well, I think, you know, my line producer on that, we're in New Orleans, he said to me before we show, it's going to be like sprinting a marathon. And I think that's the best expression about how it is, because it's mentally, physically creatively exhausting but you have to be on your a-game all the time and you have to be prepared to be surprised every day and you also have to act i think very much early in your career without being a arsehole without being sort of arrogant you have to act like you know what you're doing even when you don't mm. and you have to act like you're in charge because i think crews will rip you apart if you if you don't because mm-hmm. yeah, crews work all the time yes. right they're super experienced and they can spot an idiot a mm. mile off because i'm sure they work many many you know. many so you have to kind of <laughs> convince them that you're not an idiot whilst inside you're probably feeling a bit of a kind of imposter syndrome mm-hmm. so that's always a challenge but i think i think the, the key thing about any filmmaking is preparation, preparation, preparation. Yeah. Because you can't really busk it on set. No. Especially things... with the time pressure, like you just made a film in 17 days. I yeah. know what that's like. Yeah. Oh, 18 There's days. No, 18 it, days. Seven, no, it was 17. And that was, was it? Yeah, 17. Damn. It's still not enough. It's, it's, <laughs> 18 is not enough, enough it could is be it? 22 and it wouldn't be enough. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, so yeah. you learn tricks for that and you learn how to move fast and how to cut, cut corners without hopefully cutting them on the screen. But mm. I think... Um, 
And I think it's good training for you. And a short is similar because you'll probably get three days or four sure. days, won't you? Yeah. Yes. You know, yeah. you pull in some favours, you get some mates to do it. I think my short film with Mark cost five grand or something. Right, you know? but that's still quite we a shot lot. shot on film as well. Shot on film. Right. Yeah, which was my only time I've ever shot on film. On Super 16, mm-hmm. it was wow. beautiful. Yeah, oh. it is beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of, I don't know, I, I still... Would always rather shoot on film, but I don't. I, it's too I expensive. There's a brilliant right? film it's, about it called Side by Side. Side by Side, Keanu Reeves one. Yeah. It's a very good doc. I'll put a good. link to that in the show notes if I can remember. Yeah. But yeah, it's very good. But so this short film you did with Mark Strong. And by the way, you can listen to our Mark Strong episode. It's episode 19. Again, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And it's brilliant. He talks about working with directors and what actors want from directors. So if you want to listen to that and Mark Strong's um, TV series that he's produced called Temple is out now on Sky. Sky? On Sky. Sky Atlantic. Atlantic, yeah. thank you. And I'll give you a link to the short as well. Please. Oh, that would be yeah, amazing. Which is yeah. on YouTube, so. Yeah. Or Vimeo, I can't remember, but yeah. Thank you. Yeah, people yeah. love to see that. Especially to see your work at the beginning and how you've developed now into a, you know, what I'd say is a fantastic filmmaker. So before we get to that, let's talk about the, the actual step from short, from Doc Skid Row, to actually getting your first feature made. How did you get, I mean, it's got three different titles, right? It's got Desiree, yeah, Dermophoria, and a, you mentioned a new one there, The Chemist. The Chemist. So in the UK, it's called The Chemist. In America, it's called Desiree, and the novel is called Dermophoria. I mean, that's just a sort of, that's a great learning mistake, which is don't ever let distributors tell you what to call your film, because, I mean, I had it on this film, and I just stood my ground and one and i wish i'd stood my ground on that one i just think it's it just looks bad to the public if you change the title of the film because mm. studios do that when they've got a real problem on their hands and smaller distributors do that because they think they know how to sell things to their market mm. but i think you know you have to sort of if you believe in the integrity of whatever film you've made then the title is part of that integrity right mm. yeah but i, I the other side of that is that disputes and sales know more than us i suppose in that sense don't they and if they're saying well look if we change the title it'll sell more i but mean i go back to william goldman and it's like nobody knows anything yeah <laughs> you i know. agree with you yeah no nobody one really knows, knows anything. anything and so yeah. i think you have to as an artist you know you have to stick to your guns i mean not to the point where you like make heaven's gate and wreck a studio but you know you sort of want to stick to your guns <laughs> to the point where you protect the title you protect the cut as much as you can. Mm. Obviously, if 10 people are telling you this is a terrible title and a terrible cut, then you should listen. But generally, it's just, I think it's sort of like marketing people, and I'm not criticizing anyone generally. I just think we've let marketing people, if they, if they used to market what the product was, and now they try and make the product fit what they want it to be. Mm. I, I hear, I hear it's that. It's not. Yeah. And if you stick true to your guns, does it feel like a bit is lost from that film? Because every time people talk about it, it's like, that's not the film you made because you were always calling it something else. Yeah, it's annoying. I think the mm. Thermophoria is a really interesting title. Mm. It's true that people struggled with it sometimes, but it's like, but that's more interesting than The Chemist, for sure. The Chemist just sounds... Yeah, horrible. It's like, I do- never want to say that I made a film called The Chemist. <laughs> Which is he why was you in don't. boots and he, no, you know, <laughs> Anyway, yeah. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. Um, yeah, so, so how did you get it made? How did you actually get Desiree well, we the Chemist got, made? Um, we had the script for a while. We had Ron Perlman attached. How? How did that uh, even come Ron about? Ron came through my producer, Taryn, who'd produced the Skid Row film, Taryn Fogel. Mm-hmm. And she had worked with him. 
we basically, you know, did that sort of whining and dining thing where we took him out and he was a very funny guy and me and him talked about old movies a lot and then he said he didn't understand the script but that's why he loved it. <laughs> he said that on stage at, when we at the opening night. So, you know, he always stuck to his guns on that but he somehow <laughs> loved it. And then, you know, managed to get, we managed to sort of find a little bit of money for a casting agent and through that we got Ron and Walton Goggins, Walter Goggins, you know, yeah. who, like Mark, has gone on to have an incredible career. Mm. And bizarrely enough, they both were in Deep State, which right. was funny. Oh, which is Mark's so, strong, yeah. So, strong, and Walton's yeah. also a brilliant actor and a brilliant guy. And so having those two helped us attract the first big bit of money and then we pieced it together from that. So that was... Um, uh, yeah, I mean, torturous as usual. You always end up on indie movies. You're always trying to square the circle of cast and money. Mm -hmm. I think the truth is now you've got to have the cast at a very high level to get anything made yes. or go very low budget. You know, I think getting a film made like Desiree or like The Birdcatcher even now, mm -hmm. which didn't really have a big cast, I'd say it's, unless you get it with a streamer, it's going to be very difficult to get that made. Mm. And that's a worrying moment, particularly for British films, I think. Yeah. Because we in America, there's always pots of money around indie movie money. And I think that world will continue a little bit, but I think in this country, it's going to be more and more difficult to get sales agents to put a movie together that doesn't have a Fassbender or a Hardy or a, yeah. you know, Helen Mirren or whoever it is in it. And so, or has a streamer behind it. Yeah. What was interesting when we were casting King Arthur and, well, uh, Arthur Mellon and the Knights of Camelot, to give it its correct title, talking of titles that, you know, I what remember speaking. It? What's the title? It's, it's called Arthur and Merlin. And Camelot. Knights of Camelot. And their dad. And their dad. And, his dog. and Ringo and Paul. And, uh. and it was one of those where you just talk about it and say, look, it's a long title. This is difficult. And, you know, they like it. They need Arthur and Merlin in the title. I was going to say, Arthur and Merlin's all right, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Right? There, there was a film called Arthur and Merlin was last right. year or two years ago. So I think right. it's there. You've right. got to be careful. <laughs> and plus, if you do a sequel, you kind of go, well, this is now Arthur and Merlin. Lancelot's Revenge or whatever yeah, next yeah, time Arthur yeah. and Merlin and Guinevere decides to go for a hike you know what I mean <laughs> five go camping whatever you want you can put on the end of that but yeah I think uh, cast of that because we were casting the Merlin and the names that got banded about we were talking about that just mm. they just went yeah they're not worth anything you're like they're not worth anything yeah and you're like well, that's a very common conversation it's now, crazy and I think the idea of worth and the idea the, the other problem of course is that none of these people are available because they were just doing big little lies or mm. whatever they're doing you know so it, i think it's gonna get you know you're gonna be able to get content made via the streamers hopefully but once the streamers have had their war mm. whoever wins might be so dominant that it's almost worse than it was back in the 60s when the studios ran things mm. before cassavetes came along before Jim Jarmusch came along before yeah. Soderbergh, you know, and we'll probably need another one of those revolutions to get the whole indie thing going again. Mm. I mean, you think about the film you've just made. You know, if I think about movies, British movies, that's more like the kind of tradition of, I don't remember the directors, but people were making films like Sinbad or or, yeah. or Warlock, Warlock, I think Warlock it was. was and one, yeah. One, yeah, yeah. Those kind of, or The Land That Time Forgot, or those it's kind of genre films, yeah. adventure movies. Mm -hmm. 
But they had real budgets. They had proper budgets. Yeah, because they could have got a TV sale. They would have got mm-hmm. this, that, and the other. And now, so it's becoming more and more difficult to do those things. And almost impossible on the budgets that they're offering. It's almost like, well, that's really difficult to make and almost impossible. You're mm. kind of like, well, we're going to cut corners because how are we going to do it? Yeah. It's almost impossible to get a big explosion or a big, you know, big fight scene, big battle. How, when you've. Yeah. That was the nice thing thing about the Birdcatcher was that actually, you know, the budget was like three and a half million dollars and it felt like, okay, in this country, Norway, where we shot it, with the way their crews work, yeah, they're short days, that's a bit painful. But other than that, you know, um, you can make a decent version of this movie as long as you... There were certain things you had to do, like the ice shot Mm -hmm. is an interesting story and you know there's certain things you have to do in order to get that made for that budget but it you know we did have 33 days to make it so that feels when you you know when you made a 17 day movie Mm. that feels like a luxury to me now listening to talk of that budget and that sort of 33 days i'm going that sounds it's still like you never feel like you have enough money you never you always Mm, always knackered it's always a stretch but yeah would i go you know you obviously you want to progress each time you make Mm. a film so yeah i mean you know, I hear, you know, when you see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and The Irishman and you admire the artistry of those movies, yeah. but you also go, well, they had 120 days and they had 100 million, 150 million dollars. So it's 50 times the budget of the bird capture. Yeah. And 150 times or whatever the budget, budget. of what you had, right? <laughs> so it's like, yeah, they can do all of that. But it's sort of within, I think that's the, you know, I don't, if there's a piece of advice from all of that, it's make the film, you know, play the hand you got, yeah. not the hand you want. Mm-hmm. So make the film to the budget you have. So if you've got half a million, <coughs> make contained whatever movie. If you've got a hundred million, do whatever you want, you know, rebuild Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. But you have yeah. to think about that. Yeah. Cause you can bite off more than you can chew and then it will really kill you. Well, it could have been a problem, but, you know, I luckily had Andy with me who was, you know, phenomenal. And I suppose what we did together on that kind of thing and generally the crew, it was just, it's just you. It's kind of just you lot. It stops becoming a machine, which we had on the dare sometimes. Yeah. You, you joke with a big, a 60 person crew. You, you, it's, it's a Yeah. How many slow... people was your crew? Like 20 or 20? On, on this? On King Arthur. Yeah. yeah. Oh no, I had a camera. I had a second and a first camera system. No G and E team. That was it. But actually it's like what you say, you play your strengths. You know, we, we shot natural light. We use candlelight. Yeah. And it, it feels real because of it. And if yeah. we tried to light it, there wouldn't have been time. You know, no. it's just have to block around what's there and what's working. And yeah. And that made a huge difference to terms of speed. Because you don't have the time and you're shooting action and you're shooting all sorts of stuff going on, horses when they were there. Um, you have to really go for it. You haven't got time to relight or you used to like shoot that, shoot that, shoot that. Yeah. Because me and Andy worked that way anyway, it did help massively. Yeah. So sometimes doing it on an indie budget level and that indie's just us, let's get on with it. The great uh, HR depart- HODs we had around us, just going, cool, jump in for touch-ups, jump in for that, put that in there, the, let's shoot, shoot, shoot. Whereas maybe what you had, and certainly what we had in the dare, was sometimes it was too many people would run in, or too many. It becomes a we've got to wait now for someone to come and move a tripod, or wait yeah, now because because teams to move a light. because of teams. Yeah, stuff. not in Norway, definitely not in Norway. Was it not but like that? No, in Norway they move very fast and they're very small, brilliant crews. Um, yeah, in America, it's not that they're not 
it's just the way it works. It's just like you can't touch an Apple box if you're not X, Y, or Z, you know, which is fine. That's how it is, but it's different and you have to learn the rules of each. I mean, weirdly, the last film I shot in this country was that short with Mark and I've shot in LA, I've shot in New Orleans, I've shot in Norway. So, Mm -hmm. and in LA on the dock, it was like three of us running around in a Mm -hmm. van, you know, so that's a very different experience. And I like that feeling of being you know a small unit i like that in norway i kind of if i'm honest i prefer it the reason why i would ever want money to make a bigger movie would be actors to mm. be honest well you can because i think more, that's right? the most enjoyable part of the process for me is like if you work with you know like we were in norway we worked with the best actors in scandinavia and that i think that comes across as very good performances in that film so yeah that's where i'd want the money i don't necessarily want to make an epic movie i want to make but i would i like to work work in phoenix yeah (laughs) why wouldn't you why wouldn't you well talking about cage why don't you do us a little pitch so the people at home know what's going on so they can go watch it and then we'll play the trailer sure so the birdcatcher is set in norway in world war ii it's the story of a young girl called esther who is jewish 1942 the jews were relatively safe or thought they were in norway Norway was occupied and a collaborator with the Nazis. But in October, they rounded up all the Jews and they started to send them to the camps. And this girl escapes with her mother and she ends up alone on a remote farm. She knows she's got to get across the Swedish border, but she realises she's kind of stuck there for the winter. And she realises that the only way she's probably going to survive is to disguise herself as a boy and make herself kind of useful to the farmer and make herself into a good worker and so this this farmer who you know is a nazi collaborator although i don't think he's really a nazi i think he just wants to survive Mm -hmm. um you know kind of takes her in and almost falls in love with her so it's the story of her surviving on that farm why does your door plate read hans albertson i'm norwegian i was born here you're a Jew. No. Oh, no. escape. I'm a Jewish girl. <laughs> what are you doing out here, boy? You're here. Just be quiet and you'll be safe. Where did you find him? He found us. What's your name? Ula. You have no one. There's a lot of work to do. And your farm is very important to us. Let's see what you made of. Here, I'll show you. What? <laughs> yeah! Hey! You're a girl. It's easier this way. The world thinks I'm a boy. I saw the Germans map. Can't be more than six hours to the Swedish border. It's a safe house there. Do you realize what trouble we could get into? We caught a smuggler near the border. You're gonna tell everything. When I aim at something, I very rarely miss. And that's the trailer. Do check it out. The link is in the show notes. Um, like I say, the film is available now and it's so good. Let's talk about The Birdcatcher then um, in terms of 
how you actually got it made. Did it help that you'd made uh, Desiree de Maforia before that? Obviously, you've made a feature film now with some big names of Ron Perlman, and now you're trying to make a, a World War to Jewish, you know, drama, essentially. Well, I think, yeah, I think it helps because people, you know, think, oh, we're in fairly safe hands here. I think that's the way it helps is like, you know, it's like I said before about you get annoyed, oh, you're a first-time filmmaker. Well, actually, no, you are a first-time filmmaker when you make your first feature and you will... You know, your learning curve goes up through the roof vertically. It's and like it still Charlie does. and the Great Glass Elevator. Yeah, it still does on the second film, to be honest. It will do. Yeah. I hope it continues to always do that because I, I always feel like you're learning, learning, learning. But, um, but yeah, I guess you people know that you can work with bigger actors. People know that you can deliver a film on budget, on time, that looks good. I mean, Dermaphore is a difficult genre and a difficult piece. So, but you know it did okay mm -hmm. so i guess yeah it helps in that sense and you can you just yeah every film is a learning curve like i said and you're just putting one step in front of the other i mean there is a horrible statistic about first-time filmmakers and second-time filmmakers yeah. which is something it's like 85 percent yeah don't people make don't make a film. second i've just beaten that statistic as have <laughs> you uh, and it's actually and then huge. how many is it that don't make a third film i think it's like 60 percent don't make a third film so now i'm me and Andy Patterson are determinedly working on a Borges, uh, the Argentinian yeah. writer, a, bo a biopic, well, more of a memoir actually about him in Scotland in the seventies. So, you know, that's so you can beat that. Uh, yeah, trend. and then I feel like, well, well, you know, though technically with a documentary. I mean, yeah, I don't think I the doc counts, unfortunately. But I'm yeah. the same because I made a doc too, and I, I feel the same. It's that it does count, but it doesn't yeah. count it's really yeah, weird yeah. isn't it it's like if yeah. you're a doc maker that's it yeah you've but as feature filmmakers in terms of fiction you're kind of like yeah it doesn't really count well it's very it's a very different beast as well because i you know it's part of me that prefers the doc thing because you can go back and remake or re-edit or shoot more footage mm -hmm. and create the story yeah the problem with the scary thing about being on set in that period, whether it's 17 or 32 days is, you know, if you don't get it, it's gone. It's gone. And, and it's really horrible because you're always fighting the clock and you're always fighting the, but did we get it? I would love to have what I never have had, which I would love is a onset editor. Right. Yeah. I think that would be a massive. How come you didn't have one on help. the bird catcher? Good question. I mean, we had someone in London from about week two, but okay, they're in London. You're in Norway. I know. Then. I think <laughs> we. Yeah. I mean, it's money again, obviously, and I think it's just a choice about what you spend the money on. But I would, yeah, I'd want an editor around because I feel like you can learn so much about what you are or aren't getting. Well, we did. We had it on the day and on yeah. um, nights of Camelot as well. We had an editor on set. And what was really nice is I kept saying, look, any time you see something where I've missed a close-up or I've missed a shot, come tell me. And one time he did. He came up, ran up, you haven't got... And we then got that shot mm. and actually made the scene work. It was only a, an extra close-up of the neck stab or whatever. Yeah, but yeah, I, no, but it's important. It's important because yeah. otherwise you've got there's nothing else to, else to cut. But there's to. also something interesting about DPs, which I... I've, you know, lucky enough to work with two brilliant DPs and that's very important to me as well. And I've had massive arguments with those DPs, both on set and before, during, 
it's good. I, I always argue with my DPs. I like it. I kind of I feel like it's part of the, they're the one person you need to have this kind sure. of yeah. tension with. And it works for me. But, um, and I think, I honestly think I got the best out of John Christian. Like people love the way that film lo- looks mm. more than any of the films he's shot. And he's a brilliant DP. But the thing I sort of, the argument I had with him one day, which I'm not sure if I'm right or wrong, was I just said to him, when was the last time you were in, edit, in, in an edit suite? And I, you know, no disrespect to DPs, but they're not, you know, the editors are looking for that and DPs aren't. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. They're not looking, they're not all looking for, I mean, maybe you're an exception, Andy, but they're not all looking for the sort of, they're looking for the beauty of the shot, and they're not always looking for the integrity of the story, Mm. they're not always looking for the coverage side of it, you know, and they also, you know, that's a way of creating, you have to remember, that's also a way of them protecting their shot. Yes. Because if you can't cut out the shot, they have to stay. They the protected shop. their shot and mm. they love their shot, right? Because mm. we had a lot of, you know, we talked about it. We had a lot of dollies ins and, you know, like a lot of slowly moving camera. And so they don't want to destroy that. No, by even if it's for good reason, right? Yeah. But I, I need insurance for bad performance, yep, right? Uh huh. Yeah. And yep. I need. Also, that may not be the style we want to run on every shot. Mm. I mean, there are definitely scenes where I liked that and it worked and it was great. So it's an interest. So that's why I would like an editor there. Because yeah. I think that would dissipate the tension a little bit. And okay. I think that neither of my DPs, and this is a very, this is like, you know, a sort of coming from me, this is rich because they're brilliant, but neither of them like close-ups. Really, and I really like close-ups. Right, what kind so of close, like like super close-up, like movie close-up? Yeah, like I think so. Chin? I mean, it's not that we didn't do them, but I think sometimes there's a sort of um, what I'd call a a sort of breast-on thing of like a hand, you know, a close-up that kind of detail. Yeah, that in cinema, you, it's like the opposite of theatre, right? You can't do that in theatre. No, you can't. But no. you accentuate the eye. You the one thing we went to see Arrival. Yep. About six months, no, about four months before we shot me and John Christian. And, you know, we both loved it. And that was where we found the look of our film because we found this commonality between the anamorphic wides and then the 
the the prime close-ups and that's how we chose our lenses and you know like i said I, i'd work with john christian again in a heartbeat i think he's brilliant and he won an award for that film that's rightly, rightly so, so yeah, you know yeah. um and uh yeah i think it's um that's to me that's the fun bit of it though is i'm not saying i love arguing my dps i don't the fun bit of it is learning from them and them learning from you and learning how to tell the story best mm. through the images so let's talk about uh, the color of the bird cage let's talk about catcher uh, oh sorry um, the bird catch the bird cage is a is a very different film. Yeah, it is. It's a good film. It's, it's a very film, good film. Let's, let's yeah. talk about. Let's talk <laughs> that's why they wanted to change the title. Yeah, yeah, it's wrong. Uh, <laughs> you made me pour more mezcal now. Yeah. <laughs> I think we should. Um, yeah. I'm good. You guys carry on. Oh, I'll have a yeah, tiny bit, Roscoe, and that's good. That yeah. stuff. Oh, 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 very, oh very nice. Wow. So, yeah, yeah. Um, the the color palette is very controlled and. Yeah, we were. That was a. We had a meeting. John Christian, the DP. Uh, Elsa Nielsen, who is the production designer, and then Anna, wardrobe woman. The four of us met, and I said, listen, I don't want this to look like other World War II movies. Mm -hmm. I want mm -hmm. it to be, you know, part of my inspiration was Pan's Labyrinth. Part of my inspiration was just the kind of, uh, well, films like the V on Rose, actually, but mm. and even Amelie, where you have this kind of yeah. very strong palette because you're seeing it through a child's eye sure. view. So that's why why we wanted it to be very colourful and strong. So yeah. so it went, you know, it wasn't just like, oh, well, we'll colour it that way. It was also like, well, we'll costume it and design it that way. And then you get the full range of, sure. the, of the colours and very strong. I mean, you know, people said, oh, the red coat, oh, that's from Schindler's List. I'd, <laughs> I'd never thought that. No, no. I thought of Red Riding Hood, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. in the, in the snow. Know, yeah, in the snow. Sure. And Red yeah. looks amazing on the yeah, snow. So. But, you know, they all really went... It's like one of those great moments where you sit down and you say, this is what I want to do, and these are the... Here's some sample pictures of what I want to do and why I want to do it. And they just went away and then they came back with... Just really nailed it. And had it. And how early was that in production? Was that that was like four months out, right? Cool. Very early on, when, when they were so. three months out, when they were first brought on. But I, I, that was one of the things that most impressed me about John Christian, particularly because he's incredibly organised. But also um, those two other departments, they really took a lot of pride in it. Sure, I can um, see that on screen, and yeah. uh, so they made it very beautiful. But it, yeah, it's all by design. And obviously you've got to start early and you need money sure. because I mean, the costume budget was probably the same as the budget of the film you just made. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I mean, we kind of lost <laughs> it. <with them>. We <laughs> lost it a little bit with them because they, I mean, I would challenge anyone for inauthenticity in the costume right. in that film because they were literally, you know, getting stuff shipped from Germany, wow. hand making wow. clothes, you know, mm, proper. And you, yeah. you feel it and you of see course, it. Yeah, and if yeah. you can afford it, great. I, sometimes I think I wish, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I wish I hadn't made Sarah Sophie walk around in those shoes that were the most uncomfortable shoes ever. Right. In the snow and were original the 40 shoes and nearly <sighs> wow. broke her feet. Wow. You know, I think there's a compromise to be, to be had there. Um, but you feel it. Hey, you yeah, see it. the end result was good, right? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. What I loved about it, and and you touched on it then, is it didn't look like every other war film. And I don't say every other war film, but the ones you expect it to look like. 
And I loved that it was vibrant and had color and life yeah. and energy. And it had, I was mesmerized with the color palette and yeah. how it looked. I was like, this is gorgeous. How it should be. You know, you kind of go, well, this is a film after all. Which is a feast it's also for your like, eyes. you know, what does, why does old stuff have to look drab? It wouldn't have yeah. looked drab to the people. Mm-hmm. I mean, unless you're living in, you know, Poland in 19. 19- 52 that's probably drab so yeah. yeah you know after the, i mean i remember going sorry i remember going from on a train from berlin to moscow in 1987 and it was like someone had just turned the lights off <laughs> like, turned the color palette right down <laughs> so there there is something in that but i just think it's about perspective isn't it and we made a very you know like the script was written from multiple perspectives and I decided to make it from her perspective mm-hmm. only. Mm-hmm. And that was part of it. So the dreams were that, yeah. part of that. The Shakespeare stuff is part of that. And the colour palette is part of that. Mm. So it's designed. And I think, you know, I didn't realise I was stepping into a kind of, I guess on every film, you know, I'm sure you'll get it from the Arthurians or the Camelot buffs I'm or whatever, sure. right? I'm sure. You're stepping into a minefield. Everyone has their own. You don't realise, oh, I, I never thought I was going to make a World War II film. Mm. I've never really... I, there are some World War II films I like, but it's not a genre that I particularly follow. But, you know, seeing some of the comments online or references, sometimes you're like, oh, my God, these people really, like, you know, you have to be careful about yeah, it's get really offended by this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. angry about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and angry about it. And I know yeah. people are going to get angry about our Arthur film. They are. But it's like, well, yeah, we made it for fuck all, in fuck all day. So, you know what I mean? Well, also, it's a version your own. of a story, yeah, it, isn't it? It's a thing. version, your version of a story mm-hmm. in a, done in a particular way. That's interesting. I mean, people do Shakespeare in a hundred different ways. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just a perspective, isn't it? Yeah. But yeah, I, I was a bit shocked by that. And then people naming the... Sh- the planes that we had in the movie and getting it right you know but that's all great but that's to me it's not about that because to me it's like well it's about a girl and how she survives and she could be syrian or she could be Mm -hmm. you know she could be in a muslim in china or she could be a jew in nazi occupied europe you know it's a story it's a universal story yeah Obviously, it does call out to a Jewish audience. It does call out to that audience. But it's not, I wouldn't say that, it's not really a Holocaust movie as such. No. Because it's not, I mean, we, going back to the critics thing, we got criticised a a bit for, you know, it not being realistic enough. Well, I don't know. It's just not, Mm. it's not that, it's not the film. Yeah. It's not a realist film, is it? I mean, yes, there's some sort of depiction of a world that has some, accuracy behind it but it's not supposed to be like a realist take on i mean there is no true story of a girl doing this, well, this right? Is all, right yeah right <clears throat> so therefore you're allowed to go where you want yes I, I i just think you have to take a film on its own terms rather than on the terms you want it to be and i think all filmmaking nice. is stylized even if you're trying to be realism is a style even, yeah realism no, you know yeah, exactly if you get into the yeah critical theory side of it sure. you'll realize yeah, what a construct a realism so, yeah. is as yeah. well <laughs> yeah sure you know so yeah. there's that film bait that's just come out there i don't know if you saw the cornish no. film that looks really i haven't seen it but it's a form of realism but it's a really weird form of realism that they're doing mm. and it's interesting you know mm. so yeah so that was that was i have to give a lot of credit to those heads of department for really you know i gave them a lot of reference photos and an idea of what i wanted and they really like 
delivered. Yeah, yeah it's really how'd cool you, on screen. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. How do you like to be then as a director on set? Because as we all know, you kind of have to be the leader of the ship and you have to control that and guide them on your journey. How are you with that then? Because people do struggle with it. It's hard. It's a hard thing to step into. I don't struggle with it, weirdly. I struggle with not being a director. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I get that in your real life. And I, like, really I want to direct str- everyone. I, mean, <laughs> when you, I really struggle with that. After you made a film, I think yeah. you really want to, like, yeah. you just want to die. Because it's like yeah. you go from everyone doing everything you want them to do to nobody doing anything you want to do. <laughs> Nothing at all. And it's you get home, like, no one does anything. A, yeah. I think it's a very bad, <laughs> it's a very bad breeding ground for egomania, which is why I think there are so many... So the egomaniacal yeah. kind of mm. stories about directors because you do get treated in a particular way and then afterwards it's like, oh God, really? I have to do this all myself? And, uh, you know, so it's a bit <laughs> depressing. Not being, <laughs> it's depressing not being a director. But mm. no, I don't mind stepping into it be- as long as I'm prepared and as long as I know why I'm making the film. And I've never made anything. I've been lucky enough to never make anything that I didn't believe in or didn't want to make. And that I didn't kind of originate, I guess, as well. Mm. I guess Skid Row is the closest thing to that. I didn't originate that idea, but I was already researching that story. <clears throat> so I was extremely interested in it. And, you know, I'm, I would, I'd be very happy to be a director for hire and do those kind of jobs. And I think now knowing what that involves, that would be fun, but I've never had to do it. So it's easy to sort of step in there and go, well, this is what I want because this is how I envisaged it. Mm-hmm. You learn a lot about the limitations of yourself and you learn a lot about the limitations of the craft and the money side of it. But all of that is interesting. I mean, I think the reason why I love it so much is because you can never know it. Mm. And everyone you work with is a more expert than you are in every department. Mm. Like You're always working with the best experts in every form of the arts. So you're just really the conductor who's trying to keep everyone on the track and trying to and hoping that your vision of the thing is inspiring enough to them for them to do their best work on it and that they, and that that holds together with the story and the script but you're working with like you know the greatest musicians the greatest cinematographers the greatest actors the, it's just that's a joy mm. i think that's a privilege Marina, talking yeah. about greatest actors you had a fantastic lead if i can pronounce her name right uh sarah sophie Busnina. Yeah. i mean wow she is yeah. incredible in your film yeah she's an incredible actress an incredible person she's she's not formally trained as it were she's very self-taught she has her own method i think that the the shoot was really hard for her she's a very small very live person you know she's she doesn't she doesn't have an ounce of fat on her so she's you know in that cold weather Mm. i think it was bitter for her and she did such a good job and she's in every scene Mm -hmm. so it's really tough i remember putting the water and she was (sighs) I mean, so so to paint a picture, if you've not seen the trailer by now, this is snow all around, there's ice melting off stuff, and she's in the freezing cold water. I imagine you had a stunty roll down into the water. Yeah. And then Someone she from Essex, which so, I enjoyed. That's really fun. Yeah, yeah. roll down there, get in the water. Brilliant. Yeah. It was a great stunt. It <laughs> yeah, looked like yeah. her. It was brilliant. Yeah. And then she pops her head up in the water, and yeah. I went, "Oh!" Even I went, "Okay." Mm-hmm. We made our actors work hard on uh, King Arthur, yeah, but on, yeah. I was like, "Whoa!" Well, she denied saying this to me, but she, I said, "Are you okay?" And she said, "I fucking hate you." <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and she denied saying that. 
I don't hold that against her by any I'm means. The same with my actors. And uh, yeah, I think she did say that. And I don't blame her. It was freezing. But she, that's not, you know, she does all that stuff and she was a real, you know, mensch about everything that she did. But she, like, it's, I agree. I think the performance is amazing. Yeah. I think she's mesmerizing. But those and eyes, it's like, yeah, wow. she's very beautiful, but she manages to also sort of pull off the boy thing. Totally. Yeah. Um, you know, and the other actors around her were very inspiring people like Jacob Sedrigan and mm. August Deal and Laura Byrne, who plays mm. the mother. Brilliant actors from all over Scandinavia and Johannes Kunker. You know, I think we were very lucky to have those people. And I just wish they were known in the UK because they they're the equivalent to me of like Walton or Ron, right? yeah, or Mark Strong, or Mark, or, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. But they're just not known in the UK or the US right. in the same way. So how did that work for selling the film then? In terms of obviously in Sweden and Scandinavia, it probably sold. I mean, well off the back of those yeah, names, it was, people wanted someone big for the Nazi part. You know, we talked to people like Mads Mikkelsen. We talked to um, British actors. You know, like Sam Riley. Mm. I'm frankly happy that we had a german playing a german and then scandinavians playing scandinavians i think you're stretching uh d suspension of disbelief enough by having people speak english in norway mm -hmm. in various iterations of scandinavian accents so but i yeah i mean obviously that's a takeaway from a film like this is if you had a big name actor in it it reach a bigger audience just mm. to, just the way it is and it's almost it's 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 kind of nice in a way that actors work their way up and it's such a hard job and they get there and they go cool now i'm in a position where i can not only get paid well for doing what i do well but also i can open a movie and and it's sad for us in a way because we kind of need those names even though we talked about it earlier and someone like jude law might not necessarily open the door for certain movies weirdly but yet they want the names to sell the movie. So you're in this weird conundrum. Well, they know that that's the minimum to get it over the line. Mm. You know, because even that doesn't guarantee anything, right? That's the thing, yeah. It doesn't so mean anyone's going to go see anything. it. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I One of the things I... It's funny, because I think... See, Bradshaw kind of, in The Guardian, hated on my film, which... Like, Boo I, to him. I don't really like his reviews anyway. So oh, I was kind of, he gave, he gave, he? <laughs> he gave Joker two stars as well that week. There so you go. I was that like, says there it all. Go. But anyway, so one of the things he said about it though was that he, he said it's the kind of thing you could have seen on British television at any time on a Sunday afternoon Disagree. for the last 50 years. Well, I, but, but you know, there know, is a good side to that because I'm like, yeah, <laughs> you would have watched like Great Expectations by David Lean yeah, or Oliver Dickens or, you know, like, to me, yeah, that, that is, there is some truth in that there's a tradition of, slightly old what people might call old-fashioned classical storytelling mm, sure. right and so i'm i think that's if you like a kind of classical story and you don't necessarily want to see hostile type violence in a in a world war ii movie mm -hmm. you know then this could, you know you could watch that film with your family yeah and you your really kids yes right? yeah 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 yeah, yeah. The yeah it still has a message sure. that is important and a story that is kind of has some profound things about it, I think. Talking about your message then, how did you get across to your crew and actors the vision you wanted? Did you do storyboards? Did you do mood reels? Uh, well, we did this. Yeah, we did mood stuff for that meeting with the HODs and that went very well. And John Christian was a big help with that. We, me and he 
put together a presentation and he's a real cinephile as well you know we're both sort of like he loves roger deakins like a god you know mm. so well, that he was is. yeah he is yeah. and that was great and you know we really both love pt anderson and there are moments mm. in that film where we kind of almost felt like we got the pt that's anderson really thing. interesting i like you know, that reference. Yeah, or we got yeah, yeah. the um the other reference we used was the richard gear film Terence Malick, um, uh, Officer Days of Heaven, Days of Heaven, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Officer and Gentleman, yeah. no, Days of Heaven. So there were things like that, but but I think um, then he and I did, a, and my assistant um, Danaya, we did a lot of um, shot lists with uh, not really storyboards, more like um, overhead floor plans, floor type. plans. Yes, okay. I'm not. I think as long as you've got a detailed shot, written shot list and a, a floor plan that you and he understand, I don't need storyboards personally. Mm. I don't know about you. Do you storyboard everything? I, I had I storyboarded the dare because it was part of my contract right. to do that. But actually, when it came to shoot it, I'm yeah, glad we, I did. Yeah. But when it came to shoot it, I was like, well, I'm not looking at the storyboards no. at all. We're now we'd already discussed what we wanted to do. We had new shot lists. We had new stuff. Storyboarding is difficult because you're kind of making a cartoon out of your story. And I that think for action it would be useful. Yes. It is useful for that. I, yeah. I think I think if it's just a drama and it's actors performing in a room, mm -hmm. you want to go where they go. Yeah, I agree. Okay, I think there's the scene, you know, I don't know if you remember the scene where they reveal, they pull the hat off and they're all stood around mm. her. You know, we'd sort of done a great floor plan for that, the pushing on her, the reverses, and that that's enough. That works, mm -hmm. you know. But I, I can understand why... <clears throat> there's these companies now aren't they that do pre-visualization mm -hmm. if you're making a big action movie and it's lots of money and all that i can understand why you do a massive storyboard You've for that to, I suppose, but yeah. i think most walking and talking stuff even if it's beautiful stuff you don't need a storyboard no, no. No, you, miss you just need to yeah. know yeah and that's as much for the lighting people as anything actually yeah yeah depends uh, how you light i guess it but, is yeah. and yeah. occasionally on on the night's film i did say look here's some image here's some terrible drawings i've done but it was just sometimes to give you right i want a wide or i want it at that yeah but most of the time we just discussed it and it was like yeah. this is what i want and actors always bring something new anyway they're not gonna go do exactly what your storyboard no. says and if no. they do see that that might affect their performance anyway yeah so sometimes it's best to see what they bring i wish we'd storyboarded or previewed the eye sequence let's talk about the eye sequence yeah. then because this is i mean it's not a spoiler but it's towards the end of the movie and something happens in the ice now when i was watching it i was like oh that's really interesting you went to a dream sort of moment yeah, yeah. and then came back to the ice yeah and i asked you earlier i said was that was that a budgetary reason was that a big stunt reason talk us through what well, it was a combination of budget and script so in the script most people survive in the original script and in my version Lots of people don't survive. <laughs> you were like, kill them all. That's, uh, yeah. that's a spoiler, but that's just a fact. Now, <laughs> so there's a scene in the cinema in the script with the two of the protagonists in the cinema long after the war having a nice time together. And I was like, that's never going to happen. But that is the dream of what they want to happen. Mm. We were on the ice. There were certain things we couldn't do, like put a horse in the water. Mm -hmm. So it felt like, oh, this is how we do this. Um, but I still think, you know, we we still, you know, I'll just I'll admit this here, we still got hauled out of film jail by the VFX people because we hadn't planned that enough. We hadn't spent enough time on the ice and we didn't have that top shot. Yeah. And that was mm -hmm. me 
I mean, I'm, li- I'm literally going to shamefully tell you what I did was watching Game of Thrones one day mm-hmm. whilst we were editing it and going, oh my, when they pull out over the ice, and yeah. I was like, and just calling the VFX person and saying, watch this sequence. Can we create that from what we've got? If we can, this is how we'll do it. Right. But that wasn't planned. And I wish I could say it was. But but I think that I think that's a very good example of a storyboard problem where you do it on a short list, but something as complex as that, you've got to do storyboards mm. and you've got to do a kind of pre-vis of some sort. Mm-hmm. And we got away with it because the VFX did a really great pull out sure. and managed to composite the lake. Right. And we had this shot of her there. Yeah. But, you know, I would have, what I would have done, I think now in hindsight, is had a drone Mm -hmm. always there. Always there, Throughout the whole day. And that would have solved all of our problems. Would have. Actually. (laughs) But then you'd have tried to do a drone maybe more than you had time for. Maybe, Uh, maybe. yeah. But it it, it just would have, yeah, it would have been a money issue, but it would have been thing like, well, it's a big set piece. You've got to make it work. It looks stupid. It doesn't work. (coughs) Fortunately, it doesn't look stupid. And it works. But I think by the skin of our teeth. But I think that's isn't like a lot of filmmaking like that, unless yeah. you're Tarantino. I think it's a case of some things do go wrong on set, and you have to go. Yeah. What have we got to save us in the edit? Yeah. And but that's also like that. an interesting thing about VFX today, which is how much you can do. Mm. Yeah. And and I've, there's some really fascinating uh, podcast, not podcasts, uh, videos on YouTube about fincher and vfx yes they're great aren't they yes yeah, and yeah, how yeah. much stuff he does in mm. vfx that you yeah. just think Smart that scene. must be in camera yeah, yeah. And but it's, it's not, not it's not going through banners because people stuff. always think no, oh vfx is yeah. action or animals or whatever but it's not and so then when you get to that level you're like oh actually so then again it comes back to preparation sure. pre-vis mm-hmm. vfx you know i didn't meet my vfx supervisor till after the film was made oh right or I think I met that I had a but phone had a call quick chat or whatever. Skype, yeah. but you're yeah. in the middle of a shoot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But again, you know, it's but, those kind of things. But these are the type of things we talk about for the next time we go, well, next time I want more money and time. And then next time I might come around and you go, yeah, I've still not got more money and time <laughs> because I need to make another film. I forgot what having that baby was like and I need to go make another baby because that's what I love to do. Yeah. I love to direct yeah. films. And, you know. But I get, you know, I think getting more time is important. I think you'll always remember in your DNA now, what it was like to make a 17-day movie. Yep. So whenever you get more than 17 days, even when it feels rushed, you'll know that you've got time to do certain things that you want to do yep. mm. that you wouldn't... Like, you know, you're talking about the lighting and all of that, mm. right? Yeah. And and so, yeah, that's the lesson, isn't it? Yeah. What did you learn then that you can tell um, young filmmakers out there who are coming up wanting to make one, have made one or two already, making a you know a period war film or any kind of war films kind of period these days but you know how how do you approach that how do you go about that any advice you can give i mean my advice for filmmakers full stop is script and actors script and actors mm-hmm. right and then get the other stuff right mainly as cinematography you know then it's cinematography but if you've only got an iphone to shoot on which you can now shoot 4k on and you have a good script and good actors and a DP who knows how to get good shots out of an iPhone, yep. do it. Yep. You know, I would really, I still believe in that kind of Cassavetes, Jarmusch, whatever, Soderbergh yep. spirit of filmmaking because I think people are going to get less and less chance to make the bigger budget <coughs> movies 
for you know when they're young unfortunately which is a shame but but having said that you know I think it's always down to preparation and I think you know again that comes down to script and how you're going to translate it and and getting getting your heads of department in place and getting them working together and getting them on board with what you want same with the actors if you can rehearse mm-hmm. which again these days doesn't happen very yeah, often yeah I had to push to get rehearsals on on mine I got a couple yeah. of days and it made all the difference <clears throat> for those scenes it was like alright well, when we came to those it was like oh that's a relief yeah. you know we don't have to start from scratch yeah, in yeah. a room that everyone's been in for the first time yeah I mean we did it by the fact that they came in for dinners and we would have dinner and mm. talk it through and that nice. was something but you know just any which way you can so I think preparation but I think the preparation goes back to the script because you have to go well why am I making it and most of the problems in your movie, if you're a half decent filmmaker and you have good actors and good crew around you, will be because of the script. There you go. Won't they? That's great advice. And you're yeah. right. It's very true. But it's really, sometimes it's hard to <clears throat> overlook those things. It's really weird when you're going, we're going to make a film and the script's there and you go, oh, it's just not ready. But yeah. they're going, well, we're happy with it. We want to make it. And you go, yeah. oh. And that's the balance. At the end of the day, that's what's the difference between a three-star movie and a four-star movie. You're right. I mean, the script is yeah. huge, and then the rest yeah. is everyone. I mean, but scripts not- are like films; they're never finished. They're always abandoned. Yeah, it's true. You Until know. the editor gets hold yeah, of it and exactly. goes, so, "ADR," you know. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh God, yeah. So it's just finally then to talk about the money then in terms of because it was a big budget, like you say, and it's big budget for I think any second time filmmaker. I think how did that come together? Was it an easy process? I imagine it wasn't. Well, it was because Great. for once it was, and the reason was because it was an EIS investment fund who had certain rules. We managed to fit into their rules and. They were working at certain budget levels. As Leon Clarence, who produced it, yeah, he's great. Leon. Ran that Lovely fund, guy. you know, and so. But again, we were at the tail end of that fund because I don't think that fund exists anymore, and I think the reason is that it's harder and harder to one do EIS and two get sales estimates mm. <coughs> that are adequate or pre-sales. So every time you make a film, you have to learn about the finances of it. And then every time you come to make the next film, that will all have changed. Totally changed, yep. And it, I think that's just the history of film. Mm-hmm. Just it's hard money to get because it's always risky. So the way you do it is always going to be different. I mean, you know, you talk to someone like Andy Patterson who mm-hmm. produced 100 movies or Leon. You know, Andy went to Australia and made two movies because at that time Screen Australia Had were doing huge tax breaks, tax breaks whatever, yeah. blah, blah, blah. He had the material that could work over there. It is what it is. It is what it is. Uh, and what's next for you then? Obviously, you're doing all the publicity and press yeah, for this at the doing moment. this and then doing the Borges film. Mm. Uh, I've got a script that I've written that's set in Rio for Walton. Wow. Um, oh, great. And the Borges film. And we're developing with James Gay Reese and a guy called Matt Lorenzo, a football show about um, English, young English footballers. So I can't tell you who that will be yet because we're just still figuring it out and signing things. But yeah, really interesting thing that touches upon the whole race thing that's going on right now. Amazing. Well, good luck. That sounds really exciting. I look forward to hearing more about that. Um, Where can people follow you online? Have you got a social presence? I mean, it's obviously DJing Um, work. I'm just on uh, Instagram as rossc333. So that's me. Is that from your days working at 333 Club? Yeah. (laughs) 
It's ridiculous. <laughs> 25 years ago. Wow. It was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. But you're not on Twitter? No, I'm not. I sort of, I found the Brexit thing killed my ability to read Twitter. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. I found it brilliant. The toxic political. Podcasts. There's a lot of that. British yeah. life that we have you right follow, now. I think. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of filmmakers follow, and we, you know, there's much less. I won't talk be following that. Bojo. Let's put it that way. Sure. Anyway, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, you can follow us at Filmmakers Pod. You can follow me at Giles Alderson on Twitter. Andy, where can they follow you? Cfax uh, page. No. I'm on Cfax uh, yeah, page three four four. I'm on uh, Instagram at thirty five millimeter dop and Twitter, but that's just a repost of all my Instagram stuff. Like the same. Yeah, or retweeting the Filmmakers podcast or my stuff, yeah, which is really that's nice. Basically it. Yeah, so yeah. there you go. There you go. Well yeah. done. Well done. We haven't got a Knights of Camelot page yet. <laughs> uh, I don't think there will I be. I want to see that. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see that. You <laughs> should get Jules as a special guest. Yeah. Jules Doyle to we, come in. He we, basically was the editor of Monty Life Python, of Brian Life and, of Brian, and, and all that. Yeah. And, yeah. and myself and Ross, how we know each other. By the way, we didn't talk about this as we played no. football together. That's right. Uh, same with Mark Strong and stuff like that. And we played football this morning, didn't yeah. we? Impact. And I play football because Mark invited me to that game after we made that film together. So there you go. There you go. And that's how we're yeah. here together. And Ross scored an absolute belter. Past me, ex-Bradford City number 17. <laughs> and it was an absolute top corner belter, to yeah. be fair. One of, one of my few belters these days, but yeah. But congratulations. <coughs> um, so remember, if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well, it's your duty to send that elevator back down. Remember why you're doing it. If it's for love, don't get too stressed. If you're doing it because you want to earn money, then don't get too stressed. Filmmaking, although ridiculously hard, is a blessing. Ross Clark, thank you very much for joining us. Thank yeah, you. Thanks, thanks Absolute pleasure. Andy, we'll see you when? I'm around now. Wicked. I'm just about. And like the rest of the audience, I'll see you next Tuesday. Tuesday. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.